You don't have to look far in popular culture to find anxiety about overpopulation. In the movie Elysium, too many people leads the super wealthy to move to a spaceship. In Logan's run, they just kill everyone when they reach 30. One movie even has scientists solve this problem by shrinking people down to miniature sizes. But while Earth's population is big, around 7.8 billion people, that size is not as threatening as you might think. Population growth actually peaked decades ago. And within this century, that growth could stop entirely. To understand how, you can look at the replacement rate, or the number of children a person must have to effectively replace themselves. The replacement rate is an interesting tool for anyone trying to understand the future of the planet. But it's also a reflection of millions of individual decisions, which are impacted by everything from family planning to cultural expectations. And that makes the replacement rate an indicator of the world we'll live in and the demographic shifts that stand to reshape it. This is The Quartz Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira Bindrum. Today, the replacement rate, counting our chickens before they hatch. I'm joined now by Tripti Lahiri, who is Quartz's Asia editor, currently based in New Delhi. Tripti, I want to start by going right back to that contradiction I talked about a second ago. For me, and I think for a lot of people, there is this assumption that the global population is just going to keep getting bigger indefinitely. And at some point, that's going to become this very real threat to quality of life for humans. What, if anything, is incorrect about that assumption? So what's very interesting is that we're actually living in a moment where some of us are going to live to see a time when the global population is actually not going to keep growing. What exactly that number is that it tops out as, we don't really know yet. There's a huge range of estimations. One is maybe 11 billion by the end of this century. But it could be less and it could happen earlier. So we are definitely reaching the end of what is called a demographic transition. So where historically, clearly from some of my examples, we had this big anxiety around a growing population, now maybe we should be turning our attention to some of the short and long-term impacts of a shrinking one, or at least a not rapidly growing one. I want to get into some terminology. Let's start with what is the replacement rate and how is it different from birth rate or fertility rate? So when we talk about fertility rate, we're usually talking about whatever is the average births per woman in a particular population. So, for example, in China right now, that's like 1.7. In Israel, it's 3. So that's like a reflective of what's actually happening. And then there's another concept, which is the replacement rate. And that's the fertility rate where, in theory, and leaving aside other things like immigration, if you had that rate of fertility, then at a certain point, the population would not grow, it would not shrink, but it would just stay the same. And right now, that number is believed to be around 2, 2.1, depending on the particular country and condition. So what factors impact a country's replacement rate? By which I mean, why isn't it always two? You know, two people have two kids and go on forward, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So there are two things that matter a lot. One of them is sex ratios. And then the other thing is health in that country and particularly childhood health. So, for example, 
you know, why do we say women should have 2.1 children? The idea is the woman really does need to replace herself. There has to be another girl that grows to be of reproductive age and then she'll have a child and so on and so forth. So because of sex ratios at birth, you know, if you want there to be that woman to have at least one daughter, chances are if she has two kids, one will be a daughter. The other thing is health. Yeah, if you have kids, but they don't make it to age five, let alone age 15, then you need to have many more kids in order for there to be a daughter at age 15 who will then have children at some point in the future. So now I want to go back to birth rate. What impacts a country's birth rate, the number of kids that people are actually having? So one of the biggest ones that we've seen over time is education. Education and the easy availability of contraception, those kind of go together, you know, to be able to access or ask for the contraception, you probably need to have some level of education and some level of confidence and ability to make choices. And then education really does lead to all of those things. You know, there are are cultural factors as well. You know, for example, to go back to Israel for a second, Israel has like a pretty high fertility rate, around three. And I think the last time the U.S. had a similar number was back in the 60s. So I think in Israel, there's different things going on. There, There is social welfare that really does support women and, and there's work-life balance, but also there's probably cultural and historical factors that are leading people to have a higher idea of how many children they, they want to have. It's interesting because on the one hand, the idea of the replacement rate, even though it's crude, is kind of obvious. There's me, there's my partner. We want to perpetuate the species, and so we're going to produce offspring. But I'm curious where the idea of the replacement rate or when it started to sort of enter our consciousness. Do we know who first sort of defined or articulated this as an indicator? Yes, we actually do have an answer to that. There's a pretty well-known for his time demographer and economist called Robert Kuzinski, Robert Rene Kuzinski. And he published this two-volume edition uh, called the, the Balance of Births and Deaths. And in it, he tried to really like bring some rigor to concepts in, you know, in the study of population. So he was like, it doesn't make any sense that you just like look at the births in a year and compare it to the deaths in a year. And if the births are more than the deaths, uh, you're like, oh, everything is fine. He was like, you know, a birth is not equal to a death because you need to think about the whole structure of your population and you need to think about like who's going to be having kids in 15 years. And he actually looked at the numbers for Europe and he felt that there was a concern there that Europe was going to start declining at some point in the future based on those particular rates that it was recording. So can you give me a few examples of countries that are dealing with replacement rate in different ways and sort of the dynamics in each of those countries? So, yeah, there's a huge range out there. If you take South Korea, for example, South Korea is just an example of a really uh, low fertility rate, well below replacement. I think it's around one. And uh, the government there is trying to, you know, improve benefits and, and address the issue and make it easier. But I think it's no accident that South Korea is also recorded as being one of the places where like housework division is the most uneven. And so I think it's almost like women are like, this is just not tenable in the current scenario. So that's one at the very low end of the spectrum. But at the other end, like if you look at Israel, Israel is like a big anomaly in lots of ways because it has a fertility rate of around three, at least in 2015. And so that's above replacement. And I think the last time the U.S. had such a rate was 
maybe in the 1960s. And what's curious about Israel is like it just goes against a lot of trends in other countries. So in other countries, often like more educated women are having less children than less educated women. And in Israel, that's not true. It's like all the women are having children. And also women are having kids later, just like they are in other places, but that is not reducing the total number of children they're having. So Israel is like very mystifying. One of the things people attribute it to is possibly like this cultural, you know, historical sense of like needing to have a certain number of children. And then coming to Africa. So Africa has traditionally not been one of the most populous places in the world. Uh, Like if you look back less than 100 years, like to 1950, For every six Asians or two and a half Europeans, there is one African. But because fertility rates are still relatively high there, and though they will decline, they will take some time to do so. And that means that, you know, by the end of the century, there could be a lot of Africans almost similar to the number of Asians. And a lot of them will be young working age populations. So, you know, we keep talking about what a good thing that can potentially be for uh, a region. And so... Who knows? That could be really sort of transformative. Where do you see the conversation about replacement rate intersecting with bias or prejudice about who should be having children and how many children people should be having? I'm thinking about this in the context of race and socioeconomics, that we often see a lot of judgment of, quote unquote, having too many children uh, when it comes to marginalized communities. Is that a factor here or does that play into or could it play into um, conversations about the replacement rate? There's two ways to think about this. And one is, you know, we're talking a lot about climate change at the moment. You know, we're thinking about emissions. So from the perspective of what the fertility rate should be in different places, actually, it's good that uh, the fertility rate in the richest countries is going down because those are the people, when kids are born, they're going to add a lot more to that country's carbon footprint than, you know, a kid born in so many other parts of the world. So that's one thing to think about it, actually, like the current fertility rates, the way they're shaking out, it's not bad from an emissions point of view necessarily, uh, or it could be worse, let's say. But yeah, there are ways in which these numbers can be misused or provoke anxieties. So I think in countries where there are conflicts between majority and minority groups, politicians can become very fixated on birth rates in groups that are already marginalized, and that's very problematic. So yeah, there can be that anxiety. Um, and I think some countries, you know, when they fix it on you know, trying to get people to have uh, more children, you know, they do have an image of the country and maybe they, they want to maintain that composition to some extent. Sorry, I'm just stuck on the idea that like all the rich countries should just stop having kids <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> give it up. Yeah. Tell me about China, because that strikes me as an example where the government stepped in and there is a policy or there isn't anymore, but there was a policy that directly affected the number of kids people could have. So I imagine that's kind of a unique case. China is is pretty unique because there probably isn't another country that was able to or could have implemented such a coercive policy for such a long time. And yeah, that has really set in place a kind of fertility trend that they are now trying to reverse and they're having a very hard time doing it because it changed so many things in the structure of the population, like you know, the number of like young women to men or the total number of young people of reproductive age. So, you know, China's fertility rate is 1.7. 
and the share of older people is growing a lot. And so they're very, very worried that in the future, you know, you know, young people are going to be taking care of like two parents and, and maybe like grandparents as well. So that's a big worry there. But one interesting thing I read about China is that actually even before they brought in this coercive policy, they had a, a less just like one that they broadcasted with like health workers in every province, which was basically this kind of mantra of later, longer, fewer. So like marry later, um, have longer gaps between kids and have fewer kids. And actually in that decade, fertility rate dropped a lot. So even to this day, people question whether China even needed to do the one child policy or like, you know, they were educating people and this would have, you know, they would have anyways. To what extent do individual countries' replacement rates matter? In other words, if some countries have high birth rates and some countries have low birth rates, does that all even out in terms of the global population? And even just hearing myself say that, it sounds kind of naive. But could it be an answer um, or is it to an answer to any extent right now? I think it's always been to some extent an answer, you know, ever since it became a situation in, you know, where people were having fewer than replacement rate children, which is, you know, it's pretty recent. But yeah, like countries like the U.S. and Canada, I guess Australia, the UK as well, you know, their populations have been growing, although they're in been below replacement rate for a while. And so, yeah, they basically just turn to um, people from other countries. And that kind of brings in like a flock of young people. And sometimes it's a flock of young educated people that, you know, another country educated. So from that perspective, it's a pretty good thing for the receiving country. After the break, what do low birth rates mean for the population? I started this episode talking about overpopulation and this idea that if we have too many kids, the toll in the environment will be so great that quality of life goes down or we all get shrunk into miniature sizes or, or whatever. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more and dig into the short-term implications of birth rates coming in under replacement rates. If we look at a country where the birth rate is two or even below, where it's just low, what are the changes that brings within, let's say, one or two generations? Because you're really describing kind of a reshaping of the generational breakdown of, of any country. Well, so ideally, if you're around two, you would not be subject to like a huge reshaping that you need to worry about. But what's happening is, and, and I think a lot of maybe economists or social scientists thought that the world would get to two and then stay there. But what's happened instead is in so many places, it's actually just kept going down and down from there. So that's where you then do start to see a reshaping of a, of a particular country's aid structure. And so I think another thing that people started to realize and what replacement rate reflects is that it's not only the number of people that you have that's important, like whether it's in the world or whether in a particular country, but it's also like how are those people distributed in a lot of ages because that really affects how your economy works. So, for example, if you have a ton of kids under five or a ton of people older than 80, you know, there are going to need to be more adults who can take care of them versus if you have fewer people in those age groups. And that means you have a lot of people with free time to work and whatever, be productive and, and add to society. Yeah. So I think people have just realized that, that the age structure of a population is really important too. It seems like there is an assumption here, a partial assumption, that having enough people and the right demographic mix kind of sets a country onto the right path, at least economically speaking, in terms of its ability to serve all of its portions of its population. Is that generally the case? Like if I think about India, for example, demographically, there is a really robust younger generation that should be an asset, but we haven't fully seen that 
uh, realized in the economy. So, yeah, I think you're talking about this idea. You've probably heard this phrase, demographic dividend, right? So the idea is that, oh, there's this magic moment. A country has a lot of kids. And then at a certain point, those kids are in the workforce. And then, you know, wow, boom, the economy is going to do so great. And and that country is going to jump forward. But, you know, that's not a guarantee. It's not like, oh, this many years later from having this number of children, suddenly your GDP grows up. Obviously, like you have to do some things for those children, like feed them well and give them a good education, things like that. And if you do not do those things, then that demographic dividend may never happen. So it's only the first step, having the kids. Is yeah. what you're saying. Okay, so let's assume that sort of all nuance notwithstanding, it is understandable that countries would want to encourage a certain birth rate. When a government wants to encourage a higher birth rate, what do they do? So they could do what Sweden did or Sweden has done since like the 1950s or 60s, which is to make childcare very widespread, very affordable. A lot of kids, you know, under age five are covered by childcare. And so Sweden, you know, although it's not a replacement rate, it does have one of the higher fertility rates in Europe. Like I think it's around 1.7. And, you know, if you then have some immigration going along side, then your population structure might be pretty good because you have your 1.7, you have good health. So, you know, all those kids are growing up and then you bring in a certain number of people every year to get you those extra adults that you want to have in your population. And yeah, it's a pretty good situation. Uh, and France, to some extent, also has had very good policies. So they, they also have a 35-hour work week and things like that, work-life balance and parity between the sexes um, helps. Is there anything countries should be doing that they are not doing or not doing enough of? So I did read this one interesting kind of overview of fertility policies. And one thing that it said is that sometimes governments bring in uh, fertility incentives, but then they suddenly, the next government comes and they take it away. And this creates a lot of like confusion and upheaval. And so this is not helpful at all. So I guess if you don't know what you want to do, better not do anything, I guess, (laughs) is one thing. And then oftentimes benefits are pegged to like a woman's lost earnings or a parent's lost earnings. And so, you know, if you're in a a gig economy or you're working part time, those incentives do not help you uh, very much. And if more people are going to be working like that, then government should think about how do we help those people when they want to have a child. So unless you sort of come at the systemic issues that come with having kids and raising kids, it kind of doesn't matter how many kids people are having. Is maybe a very reductive way of summing all of this up, but but one way to think about it. Yeah, I think you do have to really think about how do you help people with childcare, especially if women are like, you know, I don't want to give up my career or I don't want to earn less over my lifetime. You know, so many incentives today are kind of also built around marriage, you know, but marriage is also declining in many places. So can we have incentives that respect the different ways people want to live now, not necessarily with what the same person forever and yet somehow managed to, like, make it possible to, like, raise children. How do you square the idea of sort of individual choice and national responsibility? (laughs) Like, I kind of liked the idea that by not having kids, I was saving the planet. That's something that made me feel quite self-righteous. But now you're telling me that maybe I'm contributing to, like, the deterioration of the United States and maybe the future of humanity. So it's a lot to internalize, Tripti, and I'm curious how you think about that. Well, I sometimes think that, you know, as somebody who probably has a big carbon footprint, like, so I don't have children, but I think, oh, probably that's been good for the planet. And I also think that given how much the the population is still going to continue to grow, it's probably not a bad thing for countries to get 
to below replacement rate and then maybe later on try and change those trends a bit once the population of the world has, has come down or stabilized. I think that having individual choice is so great. Like, I think it's amazing that women can just be like, I do not want to do this and not do it. And I really think that, that should be front and center of how countries think about this and that no one should feel like they have to get married or have children for the good of the nation. I think that that's really like a lot of pressure to put on any on any person. And then make sure you have a girl because otherwise <laughs> yeah. you didn't adequately replace yourself. <laughs> okay, let's take all of this and I want to just throw it forward, spin it forward a little bit. If our current trends hold, birth rate trends, what could we expect the world to look like in, let's like, 200 years in the future? How would that play out? So nobody can predict anything 200 years in the future. I won't hold you to it. I just want to tell you about this guy, Malthus. He was an economist back in uh, 1798, or he was also a priest, I think. And he was like, the, the world is going to explode and everybody is going to starve. And then, and then a bunch of people left Europe and went to America and did get more food. And then also agricultural technology change. So it's it's very difficult to predict. And even people who do it well, like the UN population division, their chart of the future is like a broom. Like there's one estimate at the bottom and then another estimate at the top. And they're like, yes, the future could top out at like 8 billion people or 12 billion people. So no one knows anything, but I'm just going to tell you what the UN thinks is it's like maybe most likely forecast. And so they think that by 2050, the world would have like maybe 9.7 billion people and then will stop growing around like 10.8 in 2100. What is the big lesson here? Like if, if you want everyone to come away thinking something, having learned something about the replacement rate other than what it is, what is the takeaway? Yeah, I think that for me, one of the takeaways is the power of, of education and giving women more choice. Like uh, even like let's take India. India is supposed to be at replacement rate or even below now. And a lot of estimates predicted that that would happen later. And definitely this is the result of women having having more control. And I think that it's, yeah, for me, that is one takeaway, like just the, the power of individual choice. It's amazing how many topics the takeaway is just give women more control. Seriously, the the world is so much better when women have can just say, <laughs> can just say no. Yeah. <laughs> OK, I have one last question for you. I just want to know the most interesting thing you've learned in the course of your research. What is something you cannot get out of your head? I just can't get over the fact of like, how much older the world is going to be uh, in the future, you know, and like not even the distant future, like in the next 70, 80 years. Like, I think right now the median age is around, ugh, I want to say 24. And, you know, later in the century, the, the median will be uh, something like 40. So just imagine that. And I think around 2070, there are going to be possibly more people over age 65. So, you know, everyone born up to 2005 who continues on in life that they're going to outnumber the people who are under age 15. And that's kind of like, you know, what is that world going to be like? I don't know if I hate it because I'll be in the majority and, you know, we'll have sort of domination over the youth. I could work with that. Well, I may be dead by the time some of this happens. <laughs> but I would be interested to see, like, to be around in the year that it's like, oh, yeah, this is the population and stop growing. We're not growing. That'd be pretty cool to see, actually, I think. It would be interesting. There would probably be a, a big blockbuster movie about it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tripti. This was super fascinating. Thank you, Kira. I had fun chatting with you about this. That's our obsession for the week. 
This episode was produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake, and our executive producer is Alex Osula. The theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sukira. Special thanks to Tripti Lahiri in New Delhi, as well as Stuart Giedel Bastin and Tomas Sabatka for research help. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Tell at least 2.1 friends. Then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. Backstories.